0: Welcome to the Let It Matter podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Wolf. Here at Let It Matter, we seek to make space for and honor what matters to us as individuals, as communities, and as beloved children of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5 to cast our cares on God because God cares for us. That tells me that God cares about what we care about. In their song of the same title, the group Johnny Swim offers this invitation, If it matters, let it matter. So that's what we're going to do. I invite you to join me for the next 30 to 45 minutes as we make space for honor, celebrate, or lament, and as we name, What Matters. Okay, hello and welcome. I'm so thankful you're joining me for this episode, which is part two of a two-part series on defining our own sexuality. Last week, in part one, you heard from Erica Smith all about the five circles of sexuality and how they play a part in helping us define our sexual values and ethics. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, pause right now. Make sure you check that one out. This one sort of builds on top of that. Today on the Let It Matter podcast, I am joined by author, podcaster, speaker, and psychotherapist Matthias Roberts to discuss healing from sexual shame and how post-purity culture, and for many of us, post-evangelicalism, we can reframe our understandings of scripture to still incorporate our faith into the process of defining our sexuality and sexual ethics. Before we dive in, let me tell you about Matthias's credentials so you have an idea of the serious expertise and wisdom he'll be bringing to this conversation. Matthias Roberts, his pronouns are he, him, is a queer psychotherapist, podcaster, and author of Beyond Shame Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms. He is also the host of Queerology, a podcast on belief and being, and co host of Selfie alongside fellow therapist Kristen Howerton. Matthias holds two master's degrees one in theology and culture, and one in counseling psychology. He is a fellow at the Allender Center, a nonprofit helping survivors of trauma and abuse heal by stepping courageously into their stories of pain and harm. Matthias writes and speaks nationwide about the intersections between gender, sexuality, mental health, and theology. His newest book, Holy Runaways, will release in the fall of 2023. Let's get into the show. Okay, Matthias Roberts, thank you so, so much for joining me today on the Let It Matter podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you here.
1: I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So as you know, in part one of this two-part series on defining our own sexuality, I spoke with Erica Smith, and we talked through the five circles of sexuality and how each one of those can inform and contribute to the process of defining our own sexual values for ourselves. in this mm-hmm. conversation, I want to incorporate sort of the faith aspect, and I also want to talk about the shame aspect, um, because I think the two are inextricably linked and can be, at least, um, sure. right. and, and then I want to spend some time talking about sort of the ways that faith and and the Bible can still inform our sexual ethics without um, without it being something that becomes shame-producing or um uh, and still applies in a liberating, loving and uh, life-giving way you know here in this modern okay. context. So yeah yeah um so to start us off in your book Beyond Shame, you start by unpacking several shame-based, coping mechanisms, right? That people may Mm -hmm. have around sex and their sexual selves and experiences. If you can talk about the ways that our faith upbringings, especially, you know, Christian and evangelical can produce these shame-based coping mechanisms, like what they have to do with one another. Um, And then what are the three that you, you know, can you talk us through the three that you mentioned in the book and what those look like?
1: Yeah. So, so the the way I, I mean, I really approach any conversation about sexuality because of my context is that like the, the faith context and sexuality, like we can't disconnect them exactly like what you, you just said in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the, these as I was doing kind of research and, and work around this book. I started noticing that, that people seemed to fall into kind of three distinct categories around how they seemed to approach their sexual shame, uh, how they tried to work with the the shame that they had around sexuality from these faith contexts that so many of us grew up in. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and those three were, I, I named them uh, shamelessness, uh, mm-hmm. shamefulness and, and autopilot. Um I'll start with the middle one with shamefulness. Like the, mm-hmm. that's the one that I feel like most people are kind of most familiar with. Uh, that's the one that, that really, I think like purity culture kind of falls into. It's, it's where we use shame to control our sexuality. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of this, the system of, uh, Sexual expression or a form of sexual expression is bad and wrong. Therefore, I am bad and wrong. And therefore, I need to use these messages of badness and wrongness to keep this thing at bay. Right. That's the mm. only way to control it is through more shame um, and. I and mean, that's the world I grew up in. I, I don't know yeah. about you. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it, it, it is. And, yeah. and we'll, I want to I in a minute talk about the sort of the ways that I could I could dive back and forth between all three um, in different seasons. But it, with yes. this one, the, the thing that's so heartbreaking is that we think that that will work. And unfortunately, shame breeds secrets. And then it, we need coping mechanisms to deal with our shame. And a lot of times we perpetuate these cycles that may not, you know, I'm going to say sin in this context, because at that time, in that mind frame, we're thinking they're sin. Um, but so Mm -hmm. then we, so we do it and then we have shame about it. And then to cover up that shame feeling, we may do it again. And then we have shame, again, you know, and so this just sort of perpetuating cycle of hope It's not hopeful. It's not the good news. Um, you know and i don't believe shame right. is of god right. even and so so that's shamefulness yes, right. i like that you said how did you say that that we use mm-hmm. it to control our sexuality that we yes. use shame to control our sexuality mm-hmm. it's not just a byproduct of having sexuality or engaging our sexuality we actually um mm. we actually use it is that is that can you say a little bit more about that right quick
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, shame is a really effective motivator, right? Like, like we shame can be used in really, really profound ways to get the kind of behavior that we want. I mean, we, we can see that everywhere, both in our mm-hmm. personal lives, but also on an institutional level. Like, like shame works well, but it yeah. doesn't mean that it um, doesn't have side effects <laughs> or right. very profound negative consequences, right? Right. like. And I think so So many of us have learned, or I'll speak from my experience, I learned like the only way to control my sexuality was to have a shame-based approach. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a sense of there are other ways to work with ourselves, to work with the reality that we are sexual beings, to live into our values.
0: Yeah.
1: The only way I was taught to do that was through shame.
0: Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So the next one, um, shamelessness, if we can talk about shamelessness, yeah. what does that so, look like?
1: So and, and when I say shamelessness, like a lot of people like that, that word like shameless evokes a lot for folks. But, but when I say it, when I use it in, in this kind of definitional context, mm. it, it, this is when we start to use our sexuality to control our shame. So for, for many of mm-hmm. us... So this is the inverse. When, especially when... Yes, it is. it is. Yeah. And when we grew up in really repressive, shame-based worlds, mm-hmm. there will come a moment. Sometimes it's like a, fl- a switch flipping. Other times it's a gradual process. But but many people get to the point of where they say, I don't want to deal with this shame anymore. I'm over it. Uh, I'm just not going to feel shame. <laughs> and, yeah. and And then folks start to jump into doing maybe whatever they have always wanted to do or maybe what they've already been doing, mm-hmm. um, but with this sense of I'm not going to feel shame anymore. And I, I think what's really important – or go ahead.
0: No, no, oh, no, I want you to finish that thought because you may clear it up.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what's really important in this kind of coping mechanism is is the behavior is not actually the issue. Right. Like what we're doing is not like we may be trying on a new sexual ethic. We we may be like, I I don't really care about that as much, but it's more like what's actually happening to our shame. And when we're in the shamelessness coping mechanism, we are pushing that shame down and using our sexuality to control it instead of actually working with it. In some ways, we're running away from the shame instead of actually engaging the shame.
0: Right. And, and it's, so that's what I was sort of going to say was, it, you know, it is pushing it down. It's not that the shame, uh, or the sources of those shame, it's not that our convictions have changed. We'll put it that way. It's, we still have the same convictions. We sure. shouldn't be doing it. And that, that if we do shame will result. And so we've just decided to not engage the shame rather than to re-engage our convictions and to reevaluate in a more healthy way. Let me s- let me see what I actually do believe about this, um, and then to live from within our own right. ethics—it's—it's it's just a sort of a siloing off of ourselves. Like there's a sex mm-hmm. self and a faith self, and they can't coexist, mm-hmm. right? And that one—that one I'm yes. familiar with in mm-hmm. some ways because, um, you know, even sort of in in like sex positive or, or, or secular culture, you know, people would say like, Oh, that's a dirty joke. Right. And so even, even if you don't, if you're not in a Bible class and, but people talk about sex, like it's dirty, like it's wrong, like it's, um, like you should be embarrassed and things like that. Even, um, even outside of a church setting, for example. And so, <laughs> So what I guess what I'm trying to get at is that like rather than reintegrate my whole self and say I I am a sexual being because God designed me that way, God created my body like this, God created hormones to do this, God created um, desire and affection and um, oxytocin and all of these things, um, and how do I live right. from a place of my own conviction and values? Which, by the way, is easier to do than just uh, than letting the shame rubric be your rubric, or letting no rubric be your rubric, mm-hmm. right? Um, right? So that's that's all I was gonna say about that. Was just the sh- the shamelessness. I grew up in purity culture, and there's times that shamelessness mm-hmm. has actually appealed to me more, because I don't know. I'm an eight. Oh, sure. I'm a I'm a bit of a rule breaker. I've never really cared for authority that much, so. Um, the messages of purity mm-hmm. culture still harmed me, but when it wasn't workable, I just said, screw it. Um, I'm just yeah. going to do what I want to do. And that doesn't, it didn't produce good fruit either. Um, so, right. so then I, right. I kind of transitioned into what this third one is going to be, and that is autopilot. Yeah.
1: And, and, and autopilot is kind of like... You know, maybe you've worked with your shame a little bit. Maybe you've done some work around ethics, values, what you believe. Uh, but but it really is that place of where shame may not be pervasive in in the same way that it is within the first two, mm-hmm. but it still pops up. Like it, you may have a sexual encounter, or you may feel something sexual and, and feel a sense of overwhelming shame. Mm-hmm. But but it's you have enough resources that you can work with it. And kind of push it aside, and and not actually deal with it, right? So that's kind of the autopilot of like, oh, I'm I'm meant to work, I meant to deal with that, (laughs) but we never actually get around (laughs) to to dealing with it because we have enough resources that that we can effectively kind of partition that part of ourselves off. So so it's not quite as active as the first two, um, but it also results in we're not actually working with our shame. It is still present. Yeah. It just may be more in the background.
0: And it can be just as uh, as d- either neutral or destructive. The example you used in your book, which when I was perusing again the other day, prepping for this, I was reading and I got to this section and I, I said out loud, oh, I forgot how rude this book is because <laughs> it read my mail. <laughs> um, it was when you were talking about um, the the, like you, you compared that to the people who like, when they get a bill, they just set it down and they don't even open it. Or they, if they know they're not sticking to their budget, they just mm-hmm. stop looking at a budget altogether. And boy, did that. I, I had undiagnosed ADHD until I was in my late twenties. And so that was how I did money for most mm-hmm. of my life was, yes. I don't have to right. pay it if I don't see it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and it right. was detrimental to my credit, to my sense of self-worth, to being able to dig myself out of that hole later on. And so while I may have felt like I know the tools in my head, you know, I logically know how Mm -hmm. to keep a budget. I just am not because it's not meeting up with what my desires are. And so I'll get to it eventually. And then over time, the harm still accumulates. And I loved that example in your book. I thought I just thought it was such yeah. a helpful analogy. Because autopilot, mm-hmm. when it comes to sex, people may think like, oh, well, that's just, are you just not having it right then? <laughs> you know, or um, uh, it can feel a little bit more nebulous. But when you compare it to something like that, I think you can see how how that right. is shame-based, first of all
1: yes right yeah we, we haven't actually stepped into kind of freedom from shame <laughs> um, it, it's still driving things uh in one way or another yeah
0: yeah and and even i would say and i imagine you would freedom from shame isn't even our end goal our end goal is just health and wholeness and integration where yes. where when shame comes up we have the tools to deal with it but but where we're not even still living toward with an eye toward shame. Like, does that make sense? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, when I say I, I should be really clear, like when I say freedom from shame, I, I don't ever believe that we that we get to a point of where we don't experience shame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I don't right? think that's possible. But but I, I think freedom from shame means like when shame comes, we yeah. actually know how to work with it in a way that isn't just pushing it off or, or trying to ignore it or suppress it or split it. Mm-hmm. We, we actually know how how to work with ourselves and work with other people when it comes Um, that's what I consider to be freedom from shame. It it doesn't rule over us like it used to.
0: That's good. That's good. Okay. So those are the sort of three that you mentioned in the first section of your book. Um, Hmm. And I appreciate you walking us through that. So for those who may be ready to, like your book title suggests, move beyond shame into a healthy sex life on our own terms. But we still want to be, we want to be faithful to what we believe God asks of God's people, even if. Be- if we're in a season of deconstruction and we're not even sure what that is anymore, or we're not sure what our hermeneutic is or how we understand you know, the Bible, we still just want to be faithful. Can you talk us maybe through some ways the Bible still can inform us, or maybe not even just the Bible, but Christianity, our faith, um, the basic tenets of Christianity, teachings of Jesus, can can still inform <laughs> us toward a healthy sexual ethic and practices um, that's that's not based on shame.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I, I think one of the first steps is, is to uh, adjust what we're expecting from Scripture, from our faith tradition. Like, I think this was, this took me years. Mm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'll be honest about that. This took me years because I, I had this idea and was raised with this idea of, the Bible is black and white. There are prescriptive rules present. They're easy to find. Uh, and yeah. once you know what the rules are, then you either are living by the rules or you're not. Uh, and and I think so many folks I've, I've run into with this conversation, particularly around sexuality, people want the, the new list of rules. Yes. Right? <laughs> people want to be able to say, like, okay so so what are the new rules what can I do what can't I do how do I know when I'm good how do I know when I'm bad yeah. uh, and and that is not what I'm inviting people into and that's not what I think scripture invites us into i I think scripture invites us into conversation and into complexity around these things and and then that to me that's evidenced by even the words that, that Paul chooses to use to describe what we traditionally, um, translate as sexual immorality, yes. uh, he he uses a pretty obscure word that scholars have been debating the meaning of for millennia. Yes. Uh, and and it, within the New Testament itself, this, this Greek word porneia has at least six different meanings uh, within the usage of the New Testament. And, and a lot some scholars will, will argue like there are other words that Paul could have used <laughs> if mm-hmm. he meant kind of this restrictive purity culture way of sexuality and he didn't use those words right uh and and to me that suggests like Paul is is choosing an intentionally ambiguous word and then I have to wonder why yeah and and and, and I think that 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 could be an invitation again into the complexity of sexuality, without this sense of "here is a prescriptive rule, here is what your sexual ethic is supposed to be," a one-size-fits-all sexual ethic, no matter who you are, uh, what identities you hold, what marginalizations you mm-hmm. hold. Like, I, I think we're being invited into conversation, um, and I think that's right there in the text.
0: Mm.
1: And, I, and and so. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, I just I'm I'm glad you brought that up. It was one of the very first sort of nagging things I had long before I even left evangelicalism, and it honestly it came up whenever I first started wrestling with what do I believe about LGBTQIA my LGBTQIA siblings, um, and and mm-hmm. and people would would reference, um, you know, the Bible doesn't have a framework for what we know as. Like gay relationships today, sexual orientation being gay, they there was um, there was gay sex, and there you know there's history of those kinds of things, but but oriented and a committed marriage between same gendered people, that's just not that wasn't part of the culture there, and so and then they would right. say like these verses talking about sexual immorality are talking about um, sexual violence lack of consent, rape, um, right. power differentials. Uh, and they would list a whole bunch of things, but in that list was never outside of marriage because within the conversation about right. homosexuality, gay marriage wasn't a thing back then. That, that wouldn't have been what those verses <laughs> were referring to if that's what you're talking right. about. So so I started saying, oh, I, and then thinking about like what kind of marriage like recognized by the state, just a commitment, Uh, you know, I think about in, in the early days of our country, you know, slaves weren't allowed to legally get married, but they made commitments to one another all the time Um, Mm -hmm. and would consider themselves married and partnered. And so it sort of just birthed a whole bunch of those questions of like sexual immorality when we've only been taught ever that that means sex outside of marriage. Because there's another word for adultery, right? Right. Um, when we've only ever been taught that, mm-hmm. then then it first of all leaves a lot of permission for things that aren't okay. <laughs> if that's the only yes. you know for things <laughs> like coercion and manipulation and power differentials, um, right. And then right. And then um, I just am so thankful that you you talked about that extensively in the book and that you've brought it up here because um just the lack of clarity there leaves a mm. big old permission slip for us to be wrestling like the the whole chapter you're talking about this in right. in your book is, co- is called it's a myth about how the bible is clear the bible is not clear on one specific sexual ethic throughout
1: no right. right i mean we have full-blown examples of many different sexual ethics within scripture. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
0: And many that we would never think was okay to adopt and many that are illegal (laughs) today. Right. Um, Right. Yes. What are some other examples of that? So um, that in the way that we can engage either our previous understandings of those verses or ways that we can sort of loop in other texts or other teachings that actually can apply Um, Mm -hmm. that we may not have thought of.
1: Right. Well, when we, when we approach this, I think as, as a conversation, again, it, it allows us to be in conversation with our bodies, Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) with
1: our partner or partners, uh, with ourselves, uh, with our faith communities, with like all of these different things, get to then be a part of this conversation, to then determine like what does health actually look like for me, for you, for our community, mm-hmm. and and instead of health being this again prescriptive black and white thing that if you check these like. Three boxes, you know, yeah. heterosexual in marriage, um, like, I guess, two boxes. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And then it's somehow magically healthy and, and is always healthy within that context. Like instead, we actually get to, again, engage the nuance, nuance engage the complexity. And mm-hmm. I, I talk about this also from like bringing in scripture, like that idea of when when Jesus was in front of Pilate. And Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Mm. And Jesus says nothing. <laughs> like he he's silent uh, and doesn't answer Pilate. Whereas in other parts of the scriptures, Jesus says over and over again, I have come to bear witness to the truth. Yeah. So not to tell you the truth. Not Mm. to prescribe the truth, but to bear witness to the truth. And I think each of us have lives where we have the ability to bear witness to what is true and bear witness to what is untrue. And and we can determine these things through, you know, like the fruits of the spirit, (laughs) through um, like these realities of, of what do we know about health? What do we know about? What do we know about human suffering? Mm. Um, When when someone comes to us saying, I am suffering here. I am hurt because of these teachings around sexuality. And our response is... Well, you don't fit the boxes, therefore you can't be hurt. Like that's not bearing witness to the truth. <laughs> no,
0: you're that's exactly, gaslighting. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's perpetuating harm. Uh, yeah. Yes. That's, that's so good. Um, God, bear witness to the truth. You mentioned the fruit of the spirit. And and I'll just share, when I when I was reading this section of your book, I mean, light bulbs were going off for me left and right. It was the exact things I needed. That I had been, you know, thinking I had a biblical sexual ethic, except leaving out these massive tenets of the Christian faith, like love God, love neighbor, love self. Does this act, does this relationship, does this preference, does this um, turn on, whatever it is, does it cause me or allow me to love God more, to love my neighbor or my partner, whoever I'm engaging with, um, and myself more, does it hinder me hmm. from those things? That's one aspect of it. You also mention um, testing the fruit, a good tree will bear good hmm. fruit and a bad tree will bear bad fruit and we will know it by the fruit. And so I think if we're, if we are honest yes. with ourselves, I could look at my life at that time I was reading your book and say, there's some of it that's really good fruit here. And there's things that I, I am doing that I thought I should be ashamed about that I am, I shouldn't be. And there's things Hmm. that I'm doing that I thought um, may be fine. And actually my motive going into it is um, that I'm using that person or I am, you know, I'm looking to them to validate my, um, body or my attractiveness, or, you know, I'm looking to them to meet uh, an internal need that I need to work out with myself and without really care and concern mm-hmm. for them and their body and their pleasure and things like that. And so I could, I could use those things as like, as, as sort of frameworks is how I I think I started a note in my phone and I just was like, framework one, love God, love neighbor, love self framework mm-hmm. two. Test the fruit framework three. The fruit of the spirit. You can look at the fruit, and thank God He gave us a list. <laughs> um, hmm. Love yes,
1: that we did get a list there. We Got a list: love,
0: <laughs> joy, peace, yep. patience, kindness, goodness. So if this, if this, re, if this sexual relationship or this casual sex is producing in you um, self-loathing, anxiety. Um, uh, destructive behavior, you know, like there's things that, that you can then say, okay, now I need to take it back to, um, to the drawing board and, and figure out if this, what I'm doing here falls within my sexual ethics because the fruit is undeniable. And I just, I loved those. I love those, those three particularly verses that you include, uh, in, in addition to the conversation around pornia. um, just as a jumping off point, not as a complete and total biblical sexual ethic, like we said, there isn't one. Um, but that one to me is faithful. Mm. That one to me is the most is it's faithful because these verses aren't specifically about sex, but they apply to everything we do. They apply to our whole lives and our whole selves. and we as we were saying this before we started recording. I think sometimes we can think we have a sex self and a faith self and right. they, the two can't overlap. Yes. Um, and so when we, when we aim toward integration, we get a, a a whole self. Um, and then, and then we can wrestle with like, what's the fruit here? Or am I loving my neighbor well here? Or, Do I feel loved? Love myself. Am I feeling loved and respected here? And if I'm not, if I'm accepting less than that, time to make some changes. You know, all of that. I I just think it's lovely. Yes. Mm.
1: Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I I think that's so, it's so important. And in a lot of ways, it's so much more difficult Right. Because it means we actually yes. have to pay attention to ourselves, other people, our communities, everything else. Like it, we, we can't neatly categorize ourselves as like good or bad anymore.
0: That sucks <laughs> so <it's> much. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Right. Certainty is a hell of a drug, man.
1: <laughs> oh, it is. Yes.
0: <laughs> um. So that's a great actually, though, transition to sort of where I want to um to go next and sort of be, will be the last big sub- subject we talk about. In the last section of the book, you, you mentioned these paradoxes that if we're going to be honest and we're going to have a healthy sexual ethic and healthy sexual lives, we need to be honest about what's true. You give it, I mean, for example, you say sex is both healthy and risky. Um, or sex can be both healthy and risky. Um, and so it's just naming and, and engaging with the full truth of it Rather than just a partial truth, the one I want to talk to you about is um, is where you say, let me see here, um, we will get it both wrong and right <laughs> and And you say that's like yeah. that's normal and good. So I'd just love to hear I've love to end by hearing you talk to us about what you mean by that and offering a sort of hopeful encouragement mm-hmm. for those who may be, starting out this process of of figuring out and defining for themselves their own sexual ethics while uh, during a process of trial and error. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. So I, I think so many of us who grew up in this more rigid environment around sexuality were sold messages that if we have sex outside of the right context, Uh, we will literally die, right? Like (laughs) we'll get an STI and die (laughs) Like that ultimately is going to lead to death and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. And and so the stakes are so high there.
0: (laughs) So high, especially those of us who grew up just in the wake of (laughs) HIV and AIDS and um, where you're seeing it in, in movies, you're seeing it in the news, you're seeing it in pop culture, like, and then for people who even, you know, new folks that, that, Um, got those diagnoses. You're exactly right. It was, I mean, there was the shame stuff and then there was the straight up like fear mongering of death. (laughs) You're exactly right. Yes.
1: Right. Yes. And, and, and so like, if that's our starting point, the idea that it might be okay to make a few mistakes or it might be okay to experiment, like that will set off alarm bells, <laughs> mm-hmm. warning bells of like, but, but what if I die? <laughs> like what <laughs> if what if I am doing something so terrible that um yeah that I die that, yeah. that these stakes are so high. And 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 I, I think I want to help people understand like if we have had comprehensive sex education
0: like I, mm-hmm. I think that
1: is a first step. If we have become educated, and and if you're listening to this, realizing like you haven't had sex education, you don't really know what's going on. Like that, I think that's a first step. Go get it. Like there are online courses everywhere uh, that can help teach us what we never were taught in high school or in college uh, or in our churches. Yep. Like get that. If we have a working understanding around STIs, how to prevent them, how to treat them, etc. Uh th- then we can start to step into this this space of the, this paradox of we will get things wrong and right at the same time. Uh, as we are learning our bodies, as we are learning our partner our partners' bodies, uh, as we are learning our communities, it, it, it takes it takes a level of trial and error. And the the way I like to think about this is like through the process of learning a language. So so when I was seventeen, my my family moved to the country of Romania to be missionaries, and one of the first things that we started to do was trying to learn Romanian. Mm. Uh, and uh, I I never actually became fluent in Romanian, but it became pretty clear pretty quickly that if I were were ever to become fluent. I would have to actually try to speak the language, right? <laughs> like, I I, I yeah. couldn't just sit there and read the books. <laughs> I couldn't memorize the flashcards. Like I would actually have to talk to the old ladies on the streets yeah. when they talk to me <laughs> and make a fool out of myself, right? Mm-hmm. Like stumble through it and make millions of mistakes mm-hmm. in order to get it right (laughs) in order to eventually learn that language i I think our sexuality in some ways is similar it it is a language of our bodies and and in order to get it right is going to mean getting it wrong a lot of the time Mm -hmm. uh and and trusting that process of as we learn we are learning (laughs) yeah we are learning what is good what is bad what works for us what doesn't work for us what feels good? What feels violating? Uh, where whether yes. we're engaging with someone in, in, from ways that um, are, are like healthier, like that example that you were saying, uh-huh. about whether we're using someone or not, like yeah. all of those things take trial and error. Yeah, and, and so that paradox speaks speaks to that.
0: It does, a, and a lot. Th- there's there's a thing, especially I don't know I don't know how how um, men or other genders experience this just because I I only have mine, but, um, but there's also this, uh, this thing that I've noticed in the trial and error process as a feminist (laughs) that, um, Mm. that sometimes I'll feel like, um, I didn't, I should, I should have been more clear with what I wanted, or I didn't speak up when that thing felt degrading or just this gesture felt dismissive yeah. or, um, I felt used or, or spoken to in a way that was objectifying. And so, and some of that takes therapy to even get to a place where I have the self-respect and then yes. the acknowledgement of my agency yes. and autonomy to have those conversations rather than just accept what I'll get. Um, and to be, you yes, know, to right. assert, assert my, my agency and to offer ongoing consent or, or withdraw it. Um, all of those things took, took a lot of therapy. And so, um, and so then it go, it means going back to a partner and saying, Hey, this thing that you're used to, it's not happening anymore.
1: Yes. Right.
0: Right. Um, and, or this, yep. this dynamic or this a certain thing that you call me or this, you know, whatever it may be, even if it's non-sexual, that there's, um, our ethics can evolve as we evolve, as we begin to heal. Um, and that's a great to me example of getting it wrong and right at the same time, because the healing is getting it right. And, and then we offer compassion for the self that wasn't as right. healed. Right.
1: Yeah, and it gives us permission to also change, right? Like, wh- what yes. is right, what is good and healthy right now, may not be that way for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Like, things shift, <laughs> things change. We yeah. learn more about ourselves, and and it is, so again, it's an ongoing conversation instead of a list of rules.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and just to tie it back into when we were talking about sort of you know the faith aspect of it. <sighs> I grew up in a culture and I know this isn't everybody's evangelical experience, but I grew up in a culture where every anytime you had unrepentant sin, you had lost your salvation. It was, mm. I mean, it could be mm. 75 times a day. It was in, out, in, out, sing for your supper, always hustling, always performing, and never certain of God's love or mm. or of your, you know, safety within mm. God. I know that not to be true of God anymore but man those that i mean that was 30 years of ingrained thinking <laughs> so um yes. so to right. know that getting it wrong doesn't mean you're out to to completely right. be able to say getting it wrong is like a is in the, is like a mother watching her baby take two steps and fall down she doesn't berate the baby for falling she celebrates the steps right right, right. she doesn't say like you fool yes you're so disappointing how dare you not be further along she says oh my gosh look how much you've grown and i and i think about that a lot with getting it wrong and right because it can literally be that quick two steps and then down <laughs> and yes. and so to right. know the character of the of the god you believe in that one took wrestling for me too to to not to wonder you know who 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 does god let in who does god keep out Does God keep anyone out? How does God punish? Like those were big questions for me to wrestle with until I could feel the safety and embody my own belovedness and my knowledge of my belovedness to God Mm -hmm. to then feel safe enough to, okay, now let's take the training wheels off. Let's try. And to feel that sort of parental um, delight in me, even as I made mistakes.
1: It's just, it, it's a much more freeing way to
0: live. <laughs> yeah. It also happens to be more true of who God is because God is love. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. And also right. God is not tricky. That was for some reason, it was something that I just, I didn't mm. use that word, but I felt constantly like, okay, he said sexual immorality. That's not that clear. I should know anyway. And then I should avoid everything it includes.
1: Yes. Yes. (laughs) Right. Like, like God's waiting behind the bushes to be like, gotcha. (laughs) Exactly. Like, like
0: God would be intentionally unclear, expect us to know, uh by the way, over multiple language translations and scribes and things. Right. And then, (laughs) uh, and then wait, like the IRS, like, wait to smite me whenever I. Whenever I do get it wrong, that's such an unkind, cruel God that is, that's not, that's not God. And so I, I just wanted to put that sort of, that notice here that like, maybe those of you who are in the sort of process of maybe deconstruction or reconstruction or an evolving faith, um, I want you to just be aware of sometimes the God you've been presented, even if you on paper or in your head or on, you know, uh, conceptually, if you reject it, it can still sometimes be in your bones that that's what you Mm -hmm. think about God or God thinks about you. And so, um, and that's when we start to revert back to those shame based, based coping mechanisms. Right. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, is that one, I just want to ask before we, before we sign off here, if there's any, any sort of like, word of exhortation. I didn't put this in the in your prep email, so it's okay if you um feel blindsided and and want to pass but and I'll edit this part out. But if you have any just sort of like as a therapist, a where I almost said pastorally, but but as a therapist, what a word of of hope um or a word of peace or comfort to offer someone listening to this who may just feel like, okay, I just heard maybe a series of three episodes and I'm aware that there's so much, I don't know. It's overwhelming. And, and I want to (laughs) know, but it's going to be a long process. And what does that mean? You know, they just may be feeling overwhelmed. I I wonder if you had, have anything to offer someone in that, in that place. I,
1: I would say it's okay to go slow. Um, I, I, I think another maybe byproduct of of that kind of world where many of us have come is a is sense of like, I have to have it all figured out now. <laughs> and yes. if I don't like something's wrong mm-hmm. and that's not how the world works. Um, it, it is okay to move slowly. It is okay to treat your body, <laughs> your sexuality yeah. with tenderness and care Uh, and you, there is no timeline. There's no timeline Mm. on this. Um, you get to go as quickly or as slowly as you need to, uh, and trust that.
0: Okay, so that was my conversation with Matthias Roberts, who is just such a trustworthy teacher and guide for us on this subject, don't you guys think? Gosh, so, so good. So, why does this matter? This conversation matters because of the destructive nature of shame, which only exists to steal, kill, and destroy. I said this in, in the interview portion, but I want to make it clear again, shame is not of or from God. God does not employ or weaponize shame to manipulate us, coerce us, punish us, or prove us wrong. Now, of course, there is a difference between conviction, and remorse, and even guilt versus shame. Those things are responses to an act or an event or maybe even a pattern, but they're about something we do or don't do. While shame attacks who we are, our very identity as beloved of God, forgiven in Christ Jesus, delighted in, sung over, and unfathomably loved. Additionally, I think the goal for many of us is to recover from the harm, the failed and false promises, and the ignorance we were peddled in purity culture, and to move toward a sexual ethic that is loving and life-giving and liberating. To do that, we need to consider and wrestle through the topics we've talked about this month. The dismantling of normativity. Consent being vital to true sexual liberation, including the ability to opt out and say no. Intimacy, communication, commitment versus casual, sensuality, pleasure, masturbation, power, objectification, knowing our actual anatomy, contraception, abortion access, STI prevention and treatment, our gender identity, sexual orientation, attraction, desire, and... Reconciling how our faith, our convictions, and our interpretations of the Bible can inform a healthy, faithful sexual ethic as well. My thanks again to Matthias for joining me today. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Matthias Roberts or on his website at MatthiasRoberts.com. I will link to these in the show notes as well. Before we go, if you could, please take just a moment to pause this episode before the benediction and hit subscribe or follow wherever you are listening to this podcast. And if you're listening in Apple, please leave a a rating and a review. It's just so huge and it helps so much in all the algorithms and in helping other people find a podcast like this one. Join me next week as we continue to make space for, honor, and name what matters. And now, according to our little tradition, as we close out, I offer you this benediction I wrote to close out this month of episodes on sex and sexuality. May you heed the invitation to wholeness, integration, and health in every part of your life, including in your sexuality and sexual ethics. May the harm of purity culture be healed in you and in all of us. May you come to celebrate, bless, and love your own body and recognize the inherent goodness and dignity of all bodies. May God's creative care on display in the ways you specifically are designed to experience sexuality, gender identity, and attraction remind you that you are both fully known and completely loved by the one who made you. May you give yourself the grace and loving kindness that God already has for you as you journey to define your sexual values, when you get it right, when you get it wrong, and when you aren't sure. And may the loving, liberating, life-giving God guide you at every step. Amen.